Well, there's a verse in Acts chapter 10, which I didn't refer to this morning, but which we want to come back and look at this evening, or at least take as a starting point for what we're going to look at, because in a sense it describes what we'll have the privilege of doing together next Lord's Day. It's verse 41, where Peter talks about us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now in the context there, Peter is referring to the apostles, uh, his fellow apostles, those who literally ate and drank with Jesus between his resurrection and ascension. But in another sense, we could take the verse as describing what we have the privilege of doing every time we sit around the Lord's table. And that is to eat and drink with the Lord Jesus after he has risen from the dead. And if that is what we are doing, then it is a tremendous privilege. But it's also one that is little understood. In some churches, Communion Sunday is the one Sunday that people turn up to when they never darken the door of the church the rest of the time. In other churches, of those who attend every week and who seem to be solidly converted, only a small minority ever actually take Communion. And at the root of both those things and various other wrong practices, practices of communion is a misunderstanding of what communion is and who it's for. And so with Acts chapter 10 open in front of us, those are two questions I want us to think about this evening. Both for the benefit of those who perhaps won't be taking communion next Lord's Day but are thinking about it for the future and also for the sake of those of us who will be gathering around the Lord's table as a way to help us prepare. And so two points this evening, uh, two questions. Uh, Firstly, what is communion? What is communion? Well, to borrow the words of verse 41, uh, the Lord's Supper is to eat and drink with the Lord Jesus now that he has risen from the dead. It's often thought of as a mere ritual, but we should think of it more as a meal, a covenant meal eaten in the special presence of the Lord Jesus. And to see the Lord's Supper as a meal makes sense when we see it against the background of the various feasts of the Old Testament. And if we realise that it also points us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, where we will sit around the table with our Lord and with all those who have been saved from every tribe and language and people. Like everything in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper doesn't just uh, come into existence with with no Old Testament background. In fact, I have one book on the Lord's Supper which doesn't even mention the New Testament until it's two-thirds of the way through. And that's because of how foundational the Old Testament background is. As the author puts it, God has always given covenant signs and covenant meals to his people. One of the covenant meals from which we can draw a direct line to the Lord's Supper is Exodus 24, 9-11. There we read of how Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. 
Uh, we're told that they beheld God and ate and drank. It is an awesome moment in the history of God's people. And yet in the Lord's Supper we behold God by faith and we eat and drink. So that is one of the, the high points really of, of the, the whole Old Testament. Uh, but then there were the regular feasts in Israel's history as well. In Leviticus 23 we have a list of seven feasts which were to be part of the annual cycle of Israel's worship. The most well-known of these and the one which was the direct forerunner of the Lord's Supper was the Passover. The Passover was a meal which celebrated redemption. It commemorated God's people being brought out of Egypt on the very night the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians died. But the firstborn sons of God's people were saved. And boys and girls, do you remember what they had to do? How they had to take the blood and put it on their doors. Because God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. And we could spend the whole sermon drawing out the, the relevance of the Passover feast to the Lord's Supper, all, all the, the similarities, uh, but also the differences. But I mention it simply to illustrate the point uh, that we are to understand the Lord's Supper in light of what has come before. So the Lord's Supper is something that has deep roots. And in fact, it could be argued that its roots go back beyond those Jewish feasts, even to the dawn of time. Because back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had an abundance of God's provision. And there was no sin to spoil their fellowship with him. So in a sense, every meal in Eden was eaten in fellowship with God. Every meal was free of anything that would take away the blessing. So we understand the Lord's Supper in light of what has come before. Our, our fellowship with God that has been spoiled and then uh, was restored through, uh, well, through Jesus Christ, but pictured in these Old Testament feasts. But we also understand the Lord's Supper in light of what is yet to come. We look back, but we also look forward. I remember once hearing a minister say that he didn't like the language of celebrating the Lord's Supper. He would rather have talked about observing it. And my, my response was, well, what about the connection to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Is that not a reason to talk about celebrating it? He said that it was a connection that he'd never thought of. He seemed to think of communion as only pointing backwards. And so in light of that conversation, I was relieved to read the Scottish Covenanter William Guthrie talk about the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so it's a term with a good heritage. And I was also relieved to read in a little book that, that I think some of you have read or are reading, uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, his little book, All Things for Good where he says there that the Lord's Supper is an emblem of the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
and an earnest of the communion we shall have with Christ in glory. And after all, did Jesus not say to his disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in thinking of the Lord's Supper, we look both backwards and forwards. Backwards to the covenant meals of the Old Testament and forwards to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So thinking of the Lord's Supper as a meal, as a feast, it helps us see how it fits into the big picture of the Bible. It reminds us where we've come from as God's people. We've been redeemed. And particularly, of course, in the Lord's Supper, we look back to to Jesus' death on the cross. But the Supper also reminds us where we're going, to, to the great banquet that we will one day sit down to. Thinking of the Lord's Supper as a meal also will help guide us as to how to approach it. Imagine you were invited to sit down at the Queen's table or, or the table of another earthly monarch. That would be an awesome thing. And you would have a sense of awe as you did it. But you'd also have a sense of what a, an awesome privilege it is for me to be here. Uh, and the Lord's Supper is, is both. It's an awesome thing. But at the same time, in the words of the Puritan Stephen Charnock, it signifies that there's a covenant of friendship between God and us. It says something about the relationship. So the, the Lord's Supper signifies things, but it also does things for us. In the book I mentioned earlier, Thomas Watson goes on to say, It is a feast of fat things. It has glorious effects in the hearts of the godly. It quickens their affections, strengthens their graces, mortifies their corruptions, revives their hopes, and increases their joy. We were thinking last week about the ordinary means of grace. And the Lord's Supper is what's called an ordinary means of grace. There's nothing spectacular about it. All you need is bread, wine and a cup. In fact, you could even get by without cups if you had to. Samuel Rutherford said on the floor of the Westminster Assembly, those who lived in caves could have communion without cups. But the point is you don't need a lot for it. It's all very ordinary, it's unspectacular, and yet it is a means of grace. It's been given to to quicken our affections, strengthen our graces, mortify our corruptions, revive our hopes and increase our joy. Remembering that the Lord's Supper is a meal, that it's a feast, it reminds us that it's meant to nourish and strengthen us. We were thinking last week of preaching as something God has given us uh, to keep us going in the Christian life and and how the word of God is referred to as food. And uh, thinking of the Lord's Supper as a meal, it reinforces that it is something given to strengthen and nourish us. It's not designed to create new faith, but to strengthen existing faith. 
It's not designed to create new faith, but to strengthen existing faith. And this is one of the reasons why we took the decision as a session recently to begin having the Lord's Supper more frequently. People debate as to whether it's possible to have the Lord's Supper too often. But surely the bigger danger for us is not having it enough. And then the the final benefit of remembering that the Lord's Supper is a meal is a reminder that it's not something that we do by ourselves. It's not just communion with us and the Lord as individuals, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What a contradiction it would be to sit around the Lord's table with one another if we were at odds with one another. If there was something festering between two people that hadn't been dealt with. Uh, Surely the Lord's Supper should be one of those things that encourages us uh, not just to keep short accounts with God, but with each other. It should be a picture of our unity as God's people. So firstly, what is communion? Secondly, who is communion for? Again, this is an important question Because while there are many people in the world who do take communion when they shouldn't, there are also some who don't take communion when they should. So who should take communion? Well, quite simply, the the Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people. Uh, It's not for those who aren't the Lord's people. What about children? Uh, Of course, our children uh, can be the Lord's people. Uh, he, what, what about our children? Well, we're told that we must examine ourselves before we come and that we must be able to discern the Lord's body as we partake. And these are things that children can't do or those without the, the requisite mental capacity. Even if it seems clear that our children are believers We wait until they're at the stage where they will publicly profess their faith and come into communicant membership in the church. And so we have the the same, a consistent position both for our children and for those who are are converted and come in. Once they publicly profess their faith and uh, join themselves to the church, then uh, they can take communion. But in the meantime, our children are there watching and, and don't undervalue that. It used to be a tradition in some places not to bring children to the communion services because they were longer than the normal service. But I think we can take a lesson from the Passover here, where God tells the people that God tells the people what they're to say if their children ask them, "What are you doing?" God expects the children to ask what's going on. But they won't be able to do that if they're not there. So surely we want our children to be there too. So that they can ask the same questions that the Israelite children did about the Passover. And so that we can give them the same answer. And talk to them about the God who redeemed us with a mighty hand. And look forward to the day when by God's grace they will sit around the table with us. 
But what about those who are of the age where they could take communion? What about those who are are planning to come and take the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day or are, are considering it for some point in the near future? Well, to take the words of verse 43 of our chapter, the Lord's Supper is for those who have received forgiveness of sins through his name. To discern the body of the Lord, as we're told to do in 1 Corinthians 11, it requires that someone be converted. So the Lord's Supper is for those who've been converted. It's also to use the language of this chapter and the previous chapter for those who are walking in the fear of the Lord. Now as we saw this morning when it says here in verse 2 that Cornelius feared God... That's just another way of saying that he was a believer. As Peter says down in verse 35, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. Uh, And the fear of God there is first uh, and foremost that right relationship which enables us to live righteously. So here in chapter 10, the phrase fear of God is being used to say that someone is a believer. But the phrase was used in a different way in the previous chapter when it talks about the church walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because surely it's possible for someone to be a true believer but temporarily not to be walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, do we not have an example of just that in Jonah in the Old Testament? Boys and girls, you know who Jonah was. He was the prophet who ran away from God. And have you ever noticed how Jonah describes himself to the sailors when the storm hits? When he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And that's actually a deeply ironic thing for for Jonah to say at that point. He says that he fears the Lord and yet the very reason he is on that boat is because he hasn't been walking in the fear of the Lord. If he had been he would have done what God said. But Jonah wasn't lying because when he said that he fears God he meant that he was a believer which he was. But he was a believer living in rebellion against God. He was living in unrepentant sin. And communion isn't for those who are living in unrepentant sin. It's not for those who say they're believers and who in fact may be believers but the current pattern of their life doesn't back that up. That may be in the sense of of public sin that everyone can see or it may be private sin known only to them. But when Paul writes about the Lord's Supper he warns about idolatry which all sin is at its root. And he says you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Verse 42 here talks about Jesus being appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to walk in the fear of the Lord means to live with a sense of that. We saw last week how Paul makes that connection in 2 Corinthians 5. 
where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So the Lord's Supper is for those who are walking consistently. Walking in the fear of the Lord. There's a consistency between their profession, that they, they fear the Lord in the sense that Jonah did, in the sense that Cornelius did, but also with their, with their daily walk in the sense of Acts 9.31, walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, there must be a consistency. The Lord's Supper is, is not for those walking in persistent, unrepentant sin. Are there sins that you must face up to and repent of before next Lord's Day? Let a man examine himself. But, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough, the Lord's Supper is not just for strong Christians. It's not just for those who feel they have it all together. It's not just those, for those who've been Christians for years. If the Lord's Supper is given to strengthen our faith, then having weak faith isn't something to keep us away. In fact, it's all the more reason to come. Martin Luther said, It, the Lord's Supper, is given only to those who need strength and comfort, who have timid hearts and terrified consciences, and who are assailed by sin. So as you think about coming to the Lord's table... Are you aware that you need strength and comfort? Is your heart timid? Is your conscience troubled or even terrified? Are you assailed by sin? Is it a a constant slog and a constant struggle? Well, if so, those are not reasons to stay away. They are reasons to come. Think of the disciples who sat around that, that table with the Lord Jesus on the occasion of the first Lord's Supper. Overconfident Peter among them uh, and they were were all like him. They they all said they wouldn't deny him. They were all overconfident. But there was only one disciple who shouldn't have been there and that was Judas. Being a weak Christian doesn't exclude you from the table. I know I've had more quotes than usual tonight, but here's one final one, and it might be the pick of the bunch. It's from Richard Sibbs in his classic book, The Bruised Reed. He says of the Lord's Supper, It was ordained not for angels, but for men, and not for perfect men, but for weak men. He even goes on to say, And even if we are not so prepared as we should be, Yet let us pray as Hezekiah did. And then he quotes 2 Chronicles 30, 18. The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. If the Lord Jesus wanted to ordain the Lord's Supper for angels, for those who are are sinless, he could have. But he didn't. He ordained it for men and for women. But what is it that can give us confidence to come to the table when we're so aware of our sin? 
Well, it's the fact that our place at the table isn't one that we've earned. Verse 39 of Acts 10 reminds us that Jesus was put to death by being hanged on a tree. And as we saw this morning, that's not an attempt by Peter to be picturesque when talking about the cross, but rather it's a deliberate reference to the Old Testament. And in in the language the Old Testament was written in, the word for tree and the word for wood are the same thing. So, uh, you know, growing up I thought, well, well, Jesus wasn't hanged on a tree, but but tree, wood, it's the same word. Uh, It's a deliberate double meaning. The Old Testament said a hanged man was cursed by God. So how could God's own son die under God's curse? Only because he was cursed in our place. The curse that was due to fall on us fell on him. And as a result, the door of heaven springs open for us. And because we have a place at the table there, we have a place at the table down here. Or perhaps better, as Paul put it in Ephesians, we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus And so by faith of the Lord's Supper, we have a foretaste of what we will one day fully experience. And the same principle that Peter uses of baptism in the last two verses of the chapter applies here. The Gentiles had already been baptised in the Holy Spirit. And if they had the reality that that baptism pointed to, how could the sign, how could water baptism be kept from them? And in the same way, if our place is in heaven, and if our place there is guaranteed by the blood of Christ, if our place in eternity will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then our place on earth is to sit around the Lord's table with our Lord and our fellow Christians. So what communion is and who communion is for? It is no mere ritual, but it's to sit down at the king's table, which we're as undeserving to do as Mephibosheth was to sit at King David's table. In fact, we are far, far more undeserving. But this is our blood-bought privilege, that we might eat and drink and by faith see the God of Israel. And so this week, by God's grace, let us examine ourselves and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. And let's receive the elements next week as coming not ultimately from the hand of an elder or from the hand of the person sitting beside us, but as coming ultimately from the hand of Christ, who went to the cross so that we could sit at the table with him, and who looks forward to the day when he will drink it new with us, in his Father's kingdom. Amen. Well, in light of these things, we'll turn to Psalm 116, verses 8 to 11. Psalm 116, 8 to 11, page 287. Uh, There will be some overlap with the verses that we sang this morning, but it's just such an appropriate psalm uh, to sing when we have this a sense of being overwhelmed with God's blessings that we might come to the table uh, not so much as a statement about our faith but in joyful response to what God has done for us 
so the tune will be 106, uh, tune 106, Psalm 116, 8 to 11, page 287, will stand to sing praise. <laughs> 